Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, everybody. It's Srini and Gareth. Welcome to what is the final episode. Well, not exactly... Uh, of the unmistakable creativity hour we'll explain why we say that um what's going on man how are you doing oh dude i'm doing well how are you well i've been better like today you know as i mentioned to you it's been a 24-hour nightmare of you know delayed flights and all sorts of Mm -hmm. other nonsense and it's never fun honestly it used to be fun i don't know what happened like you know we, we somehow thought that you know we'd get back to normal and you know we were we said we were going to do an episode on you know, post-pandemic mental health. And then we both kind of realized we needed somebody who's more qualified to talk about that here than the two of us, because we're both basically mentally ill, which you guys have all concluded. (laughs) Um, So, you know, two people who are mentally ill talking about how to improve your mental health probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I did have a friend who's an, uh, you know, an offline dating expert who focuses on social connection. We might have to have her. She's actually pretty fun. Um, and she was talking about sort of, you know, how loneliness is this thing that just creeps up on you. Whereas hunger, you feel it kind of instantly. She said, loneliness, you don't really feel that instantly, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. One of the things that we wanted to spend some time doing is to talk about something that is of interest to everybody who wants to make a living for that art. And that is how do you make a living when you do creative work or how do you make a living as an entrepreneur? And I think that you and I have both kind of been through this experience, you know, of, oh, I've built this cool thing. So people will show up and somehow money will fall from the sky. And we both know that's not true. And then unfortunately, like I, you know, one of the things I always have to remind myself, I had these two affirmations and I jokingly say, I say them externally, but Matt, you know, my old roommate says, he's like, I think these are your internal affirmations to remind you to ask people for money which is we're running a business, not a fucking charity. And, you know, two, you know, if you build it, he will come is, you know, not a strategy. It's like, this is not the field of dreams. This is real life. Like the internet Mm. is not the field of dreams is the other one. But I see that so often where people think that I've created this amazing thing 
and everybody will you know, want to buy it. Like I, I had a friend who is a really smart guy. He's a neurosurgeon. I was skiing with him. He was like, I think I can sell 10,000 books. I was like, fine, go do it. I said, I think you're wrong. He was like, and I said, because you don't have a platform, you don't have an audience, you think this is that easy? Go do it. I'm like, spend a year doing it. And he's like, he was, you know, he and I were kind of arguing. And he was like, he's like, I'm, he's like, you think you're right about so much that you're not right about. And I was like, in this case, I'm dead on right. I know this because I've written books. And I was like, you're a nobody on the internet. You're not going to sell 10,000 books, but be my guest. I was like, I don't doubt your ability to write a good book. You're a smart guy. I'm like, right, but right. I think that you're, you know, joking to yourself if you think you're going to sell 10,000 books. Um, because I know what it takes to sell books, you know, having not sold as many as I wanted to and seeing plenty of people who have these delusional ideas that, hey, I'm going to just sit here and write this thing in isolation and suddenly everybody's just going to give me money for it because I'm such a great writer. And unfortunately, that is not the way this works. Like, there are really shitty books that are on the New York Times bestsellers. I mean, Snooki is a New York Times bestselling author. Did you know that? Um, I'm proud to admit I have no idea who that is. Well, uh, she, she sounds uh, ridiculous. She is ridiculous. She's on. The, she's a reality TV show character on the Jersey Shore, and the only reason I know who she is is because I saw her book in Barnes and Noble, and I was like, I mean, I'm well versed in pop culture to a degree. I don't like reality TV, although apparently I need to watch Love Is Blind because um, now the Indian guy in Love Is Blind has gone off gone off on Nick Lachey. I don't know if you knew about oh that. Oh my god, dude! Yes, I watched Love Is Blind. It's absurd. Um, let's just say that you did much better on Indian matchmaker than this guy did on love is blind because yeah, apparently he's was like trying bad. to like, you know, you know, rip Newton, Nick Lachey to shreds, you know, in the public. I don't know. It's hungry. And I looked at the guy, I was like, oh, I'm like, you look, you, your, your facial expressions here don't, you know, look like they're helping you. Yeah. He, he made a mess of things, man. He, he wound up with a lot of egg on his face. It was really bad. Yeah. Like probably one of the worst, reality TV show, uh, you know, snafus. Like somebody just, I mean, he, he basically shot his career and everything. I mean, any woman who dates him after this, I, I, I she has to live in a box. <laughs> I don't know. You know, that is really unfortunate. I, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know how that's all going to work, but, um, anyways, so one of the things I want to talk about is, is monetization of media, right? So mm-hmm. I think that they're, was this idea that, oh, you know what, now there are blogs, we can put our work out there, and everybody will find us, and somehow money will fall from the sky. And that's obviously not true. Yeah, because there there are actually people with big audiences who don't make a dime, because they don't understand, you know, this is a business, not just a hobby. But I want to go back to the late 90s. Somehow, we seem to like, you know, be having a, a history of the internet class here. Uh, every week we seem to review something, but this week I want to talk about <laughs> Napster first, right? Do you remember when Napster right, came right. out? Um, yeah, vaguely. I mean, you know, you and I were at that exennial or zennial stage, right between you know Gen X and millennials. Yeah. Um, and so we were what high school or or early college when that happened. I was, I know, I very distinctly remember it. I was in my junior year in college. So for me, you know, the big thing about something like Napster is that you got to remember, I am very much a guy who loved music, even though I hated my high school band director, the second one, not the, you know, the one that caused us to and not become friends for 20 years. But, uh, 
so music was always a big part of my life. And I spent a lot of money on CDs. Like even in high school, I was a member of Columbia House. Uh, do you remember that? Like you'd have to, you'd sign oh up. Oh my gosh, I do. And you'd sign up for the BS CD club. Uh, what was it? Did we talk about this? Like first CDs. Do you remember what your first CD was? My first CD, I feel like maybe it was Weezer. Mine were Millie Vanilli and the Top Gun soundtrack. Wow. Yeah. Dude. So my dad got me a Columbia House uh, membership. This was in like seventh grade. And then, you know, I remember I had a collection in pretty much all through high school. And then I got to Berkeley and I remember high speed internet had just started. And in the dorms, you could share music and MP3s mm-hmm. had just come out. And so what mm-hmm. people would do is they would just fill all these hard drives with their MP3 collections and you could copy them. Right. And there are all these songs that I always loved and I didn't know who sang them. And so I basically learned all of them. Now, obviously, Sean Fanning was much smarter than the both of us because he went and invented <laughs> Napster or Sean Parker, right, right. Sean Fanning, whatever. And I very distinctly remember this because there are two things that happened. Napster coincided with the mass adoption of high-speed internet. Because up until that point, most people had dial-up at home. And I only know this because in the dorms, we had high-speed internet. But when we moved mm. to apartments, we had to like move to dial-up, which was a pain in the ass. It was just like, this is horrible. But I remember that summer very distinctly because cable modems came to Berkeley. And I remember when Napster came out, I went to Rasputin. This is a really well-known music store in Berkeley. And I walked in with a yellow notepad, and I wrote down the names of every single CD I ever wanted to buy for one song. And I went home and I downloaded every single one of them. Wow. The whole CDs or just the songs? No, no, just the songs I wanted because they were easy to find because they were popular songs. Because so often, most of us only ever wanted a CD for one song. And this basically, you know, created a forever tiff in, you know, my sister's uh, trust of my recommendations for anything. So my sister got an allowance, and Sarisha was always way more savvy than I was when it came to this kind of stuff. So she was always like, yeah, I'm just going to save my money, whatever. And Mm -hmm. somehow I persuaded her that she should buy the Rembrandt CD uh, because I wanted that soundtrack, which this is even funnier now that I'm talking to you, for the guy who hates Friends. Um, Yeah, absolutely hates it. So I wanted that soundtrack because I liked the theme song. And she was like, how do you know the CD is good? I was like, trust me, the whole CD is amazing. Which was all bullshit. It was a lie. I mean, I probably could have been a record company executive. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, based on, on that sell, maybe that's what I should have done. Mm-hmm. But I basically convinced her to buy the CD. And from that point forward, she never trusted any of my recommendations again when it came to pop culture. She was like, yeah, you're full of shit. Because it was a terrible CD. Like, I literally lied to her. Oh, yeah. um, and I made her buy a CD for one song because I wanted that one song. But I don't think I was alone. Like, most people probably didn't dupe their, you know, siblings. Um, but so many of us were buying CDs for one song, which is when, why when Napster came out, people were like, oh, this is great. But I think that there's a consequence to this that we didn't think about. And I didn't really consider the consequences of this until I started making a living as a creator, mm-hmm. at which point I actually stopped. I mean, I stopped doing that years ago, but my sister made a really good point. She said, how would you feel if you knew people were doing that to your books? Right. Right. So we got kind of into this sort of conundrum where something that was great for the consumer was terrible for the artist and awful for the <laughs> record companies. Uh, well, 
Well, you say great for the consumer. You know, it makes me think of back in business school where we would say, you know, if there's if you have a product or service that you offer and there are people who want to buy it, they're always going to want it done right, fast as possible and cheaper than, you know, I'll get it. And of course, this is the conundrum in business where it's like you can't deliver all three of those things. You can't be fast and the best and Mm -hmm. the least expensive. Yeah. So what are you going to choose? What are you going to do? Right. But yeah, yeah, Napster comes along and they're like, no, we're all those things. But it was literally theft, right? Well, yeah. So creating these, this music and having it just stolen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I honestly had an idea for a book titled Grand Theft Internet, what I learned from a dozen, (laughs) dozen years of digital theft. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to jail. Um, but the, the funny thing is that, yeah, I, honestly, probably everybody listening to this, if you know they confessed in a court of law, is guilty of breaking numerous laws when it comes to piracy. Like all of us, to some degree. Like I'm sure we've all downloaded something off the internet that we didn't. Like I accidentally used a photograph uh, that I thought was a Creative Commons photograph. Three years later, the company you know came back and was like, "Hey, you're using this photographer's thing," and I'm like. This is five hundred dollars from paying for a photo that I used in a blog post because that blog post was popular. Somehow it got on the right. photographer's radar, and so I had to pay five hundred dollars for the thing. I had to pay it off. But you know, the thing is that that made me kind of realize it's like, yeah, okay, everybody wants everything to be free. Where we're like, okay, everything on the internet should be free. We should never have to pay for anything. Um, and when people who are giving me stuff for free try to sell me something, I get pissed off, and. I'm in my mindset thinking, yeah, but somebody is paying for this is what most people don't realize. Right. So that was the brilliance. I think of iTunes was that they found something that was good for the consumer, but didn't screw over the artist. Yeah. They screwed over the record company, but the record companies were the biggest culprits in the first place because they were screwing everybody. You know, I don't know how well artists did with record companies, but for the most part, Record labels don't seem. Record labels are like book book publishers. Like almost every author I know bitches about their publisher. They all have some gripe about their publisher, and I'm guessing every artist has the same issues with a re- every every musician has the same things. The record label, every actor has the same thing. The movie studio, right? And so suddenly you got this situation where you had this intermediary that was like, okay, let us do what's right for the consumer by giving them what they want. But not forcing them to, you know, also purchase things they don't want. You know, like, how I mean, how many CDs did you buy just for one song? Dude, I had. Do you remember the CD books that we used to have when we were kids? Yes, like, yes, they, yeah. You know, the, these like I have two of those, like two hundred, like right. there were probably eight hundred CDs yes. in that thing. Yes, yeah, you could fit yeah hundreds of CDs in these things, and every single one of those CDs that I bought when I was that age, I did it because there was one song I liked. Yeah, you know, I think there was. Out of all the CDs I ever owned, the only one where I listened to more than like four of the songs was a Boys to Men album because they had a really Boys good to, Boys to Men album. A Boys to Men and U two. Yeah, U two. Which, had a good, which had Boys a good to Men album? album? Um, I don't remember the name of it, but it was blue. Like oh, had, I know, I don't know. No, Cooley Har Harmony two. Is that what it was? I think so, because that was the one that had on Bended Knee, I'll Make Love to You. Yes, um, yes. You know, oh, Water and, Runs and, Dry. And the last song on it was Yesterday. They covered the Beatles song. Yeah. So good. Water Runs oh. Dry was on that album. Yeah, it was Cooley High Harmony 2. So I remember that. So good. Because the first album was the one that put them on the map. It was Motown Philly. Um, yep. 
Motown Philly, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. And actually, on that first album, those were the only two songs that really were that great. But that album you're talking about was fantastic. Boys to Men, you know, they, they really kind of paved the way for everybody else as far as I'm concerned. Like, boy bands exist because of Boys to Men. <laughs> and they're so much better That's, than all boy are, bands. Is that who we have to thank for K-pop and all of this? <laughs> That's who you have to thank stuff. for Love is Blind, actually. You can blame, you know, oh, Sean yeah, Stock. Oh, Nick Lachey came yep. from, from uh, 98 Degrees. That's right. Who would not have existed without Boys to Men. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I, I mean, listen, hey, I loved Boys II Men. Um, mm. Still, if I had a chance to see them in concert, I would jump at it. They were you great. can't. They actually, they were at, um, there's a casino in Temecula where they were giving a concert la- about two years ago. Are you serious? Oh, yeah, Boys II Men, Boys II Men occasionally tours. Like, and the funny thing is, it's going to be all people our age in the audience. I remember I try, I, I was yeah. seeing a girl at that time and I was like, hey, do you want to go see Boys II Men? And she was like, yeah. And then I realized, I was like, damn it, it's too late. And either that or she broke up with me like a day later. Uh, uh, one of the two. Um, oh, anyway. high school. High school I love. <laughs> well, this wasn't even high school, man. This was like, you know, three years ago. But <laughs> I was a whole other okay. side. So <laughs> besides, when we were in high school, Boys to Men would not have been playing in casino and, you know, the Pachanga Casino. They would have oh, been playing true. sold out stadiums. But the thing is that, to your point, other than that, you got so many CDs for one song, like we got ripped off, right? Yeah. You got completely screwed. 100%. So that was the genius of Steve Jobs coming up with the iTunes store was he's like, look, 99, at 99 cents, you never bat in an eyelash. You're like, ah. no, I was like, all right, you know what? Yeah. I mean, if I spent a hundred, like a hundred songs that I know I absolutely love, they're perfect quality. I'll have everything I want. Um, right. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't that piracy didn't continue after that. But the more that I got down that that rabbit hole and the more that I started creating and getting paid to do creative work, the more I started thinking about the implications of that and what that does to the career of artists, particularly now where we are in this era where people create so much free content and get nothing in return for it and have this sort of, you know, very delusional idea that, oh, you know what, I'm going to just continue creating all this crap for free and somehow it's going to translate to money. So talk (laughs) to me about that from a perspective of somebody who has a popular YouTube channel. Well, popular is um, relative, is relative, right? Um, You know, to put this in perspective, at this time, our YouTube channel has almost 18,000 subscribers um, and we've done 3.5 3.5 million views in the three and a half years that we've had the channel. Okay. I only know these numbers because I just looked up the number of views uh, because you and I were talking about it prior to starting to record. Mm-hmm. Here. So, yeah. I mean, all things considered, that's not really big in, in the YouTube world at all. Um, you know, some people have a video, a single video that does 3.5 million views. Yeah. But yeah. Um, for our niche, we are probably one of the larger channels. So yes, what is my perspective on this? I think that I think that for folks who produce free content, it is one of the best ways to attract leads into a business mm-hmm. because you're providing value. You're right. you're not leading with a sale. You're legitimately saying, "Hey, check out this solution, this uh, this thing that you might be wondering about, whether that's YouTube or blogging or podcasting or whatever, 
Um, everybody starts out producing some free content uh, and and showing that they have something valuable to, to discuss. Yeah. The, the, the part where I feel like most people fail on YouTube is they want to become YouTubers and make a living off of YouTube ad money, which I think, uh, is it possible? Sure. But you have to be viral, right? Yeah. In, in order to make a real living. It's way easier to have a niche market like mine and... Instead of trying to be, you know, a millionaire from YouTube, offer services and mm-hmm. actually build a funnel that takes people from a viewer on your channel to somebody who may at some point buy from you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. 
We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the thing that's interesting, so we had William Dershowitz here, and unfortunately we can't find that clip where he actually talked about the, the actual numbers for what you're talking about, and they're mm-hmm. pretty horrifying. So you told me your numbers. Now, that's over three years, right, that you're talking about? Yes. Um, here, I actually, I'm looking at my channel. We started putting out our content in 2018. May of 2018. So this would be our four, let's call it our four year anniversary. So over four years, we've done about a million views per year. Okay. Um, and we've, we've produced about $30,000 worth of revenue from YouTube ads. Okay. So on YouTube ads, how many videos did you have to do? Oh my gosh. Numbers of videos. I've done a video a week for four years. So, so that's probably what figure we've got. Yeah. Two or 300 videos. So in reality, you made about a hundred dollars per video. If that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some videos obviously do really well. Yeah. So I mean, that's the thing. The problem is I think that when people hear those big numbers, they're going to, you know, so have this sort of causation with correlation mistake uh, yeah. and be like, Oh, okay. Well, all I need is those big numbers. And then, you know, I can make, you know, $30,000 in ads, which sounds like a lot. But then when you're like, wait a minute, you made $30,000 in ads from 200 videos over four years. That's right. actually not that much in the grand it's scheme not. of things. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, I've so, spent more money advertising on YouTube than I've earned from YouTube. Yeah. Ads. Well, okay. So, so that's, the, that's the thing, right, is that. People are going to hear that and say, okay, well, well, what if I don't want to create a service-based business, which is a good point. Like, like I want to get paid for creating content, which people do. You know, there are sure. people who get paid purely for content. And so I want to talk about, you know, sort of how that actually works and the economics of what yeah. people consider free content, right? So here's what I, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that there is literally nothing that is truly free at all. Like nothing is free on the internet. Yes, you might not spend money on it, but somebody subsidizes your ability to consume content for free or use a product for free. And believe it or not, you are paying for it in ways that you don't realize. So let's take Facebook, for example, right? Let's just take any SaaS-based product where you have a paid tier of users who subsidize people being able to use it for free. The reason that we all get to use Facebook for free is what do you think we're giving them? Something that is worth way more than the $5, like $5 a month that you would pay to use Facebook. Like I would happily pay $5 a month to use Facebook if they never sold any of my data to an advertiser. But the thing is that is, it's not nearly as lucrative. Right. Yeah, they're gonna. So make, nobody. They make way more than five dollars a month. Off yeah, exactly. Year. They make so much money off of you, and not only that, you don't see a dime of that money. Right. right. That's the that's the the genius of Facebook is that they literally have built a billion dollar business on the backs of slave labor. Like I've said, the creator economy is a modern day form of slavery. It really is mm. in a lot of ways because Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all these companies have been built on the backs of people who do a ton of work for them for free and don't see a dime from any of it. Yep. Like tons and tons of people, right? And so that's part of the issue here is that you're never truly consuming something, using anything for free. That's distribution. 
But then you have content like this podcast, um, the YouTube videos you watch, websites like Medium, uh, you know, whatever, BuzzFeed, CNN. Now, the delusion, of course, is that, oh, I get to read all this stuff on the Internet for free. Mm -hmm. But you're not actually reading it for free because... There are a couple of groups of people that all subsidize this, right? The way I broke this down is there are three groups of people that subsidize creators, lurkers, fans, and fanatics, right? So Hold on. lurkers, fans, and fanatics. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Typically, now that applies more to independent, independent media creators, but I, I think overall you could say that, you know. So you know, lurkers are people that will literally just, you know, come by, they'll, you know, there are certain sites where we're all lurkers, right? We might occasionally, sure. you know, show up and read something. Um, you know, we're not going to comment on it. We're not going to share it, but we're interested. So we click and we scan it and we're like, all right, cool. Lurk, I'm a lurker. And then you have fans. Fans are people who regularly engage, but they'll also never spend any money. And fanatics are the people who are like, I need to see this thing exist because it adds this much value to my life. So I will continue to spend money to support. I will spend money to support this because I want it to stay in existence. Right? Yes. Yes. Now this is, this is, we're talking just pure media, right? And it's not, you know, what you're talking about is different like with a business, but, um, so that's, that's the interesting thing about media, but here's what is, you know, kind of screwy is when media is advertiser supported, the, unfortunate downside of that is content creators have to make decisions that optimize for metrics instead of providing value for the people who consume their content. Because at the end of the day, ads are all about eyeballs. So you're trying to get the largest number of people possible. Uh, so here's a great example of this or, or whatever affects the bottom line. And this is something I've written about. I've talked about on the show before uh, about, I think, what was it like a couple of years ago, I was watching a, uh, documentary on YouTube about an expose that a journalist at CBS was doing on Nike and Nike's use of sweatshops mm. and sweatshop labor. Coincidentally, CBS also happened to be sponsoring the Olympics or, or Nike happened to be sponsoring the Olympics on CBS that year. Whoops. So here you have all these anchors in Nike gear. What do you think CBS did? They killed the story. They killed an they killed an important story to protect their bottom line. And that's what happens when advertising drives the production of media and, you know, content on the internet or news in general. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents were just watching the news. They went upstairs like, all right, do your podcast. Like, and you know, this is the, the argument I had with them. I was like, mom, I was like, the news does not inform exist to inform the public. I'm sorry to tell you this. You might believe this, but it doesn't. The news is propaganda and it doesn't matter what, form of news you consume, the purpose of news is to sell ads. Mm -hmm. Every you know, broadcast that you ever watch that you quote unquote think is about current events or to tell you what's going on in the world exists for one reason, to sell ads. How do you feel that that compares to, let's say like uh, national public radio, NPR? Who so is, that's a, well, that's a thing, right? So NPR is able to do a lot of the things that they do and tell the stories that they do because they're largely supported by their listeners. They're largely mm -hmm. supported by public contributions. Don't get me wrong. You hear ads on NPR, right? Sure. But because of the fact that they are not advertiser dependent, and I don't know the business model of NPR, but because of the fact that well, they, they don't... Like once a quarter, I think they yeah. ask for sponsors, right? They're like... Yeah, hey, yeah. They, they, and, yeah. And the thing is that they are large enough that that's enough. Right. 
the, right. the, the large enough thing to be like, all right, cool. Yeah. Hey, and enough people do. I mean, there, there are creators when I'm just like, you know what? Like this person is doing great work. I want to support them. So yeah, it's like $3 a month. You don't bat an eyelash. You just don't think about it. Right. Right. And the thing is that what a lot of people don't realize is that it's the people who do that, that subsidize everybody else's ability to listen to NPR for free, you know, and it happens with advertiser supported media too. But if you think about the diversity of content, the diversity of stories and the, the sheer, you know, perspective, like, you know, diversity of perspectives you get at NPR and contrast that with CNN, which is very narrow. Like we have an agenda, you know, there's no set sort of agenda. Whereas if you're driven by advertiser interests, then you have to do things not for the sake of public good, not for the sake of informing the public, not for the sake of telling interesting stories, but for the sake of one thing, eyeballs, to reach as many people as possible. So what you do is you have the most sensationalist stories you can find. Like, think about BuzzFeed, right? BuzzFeed is bullshit, let's be honest. Like, literally nothing on BuzzFeed makes any difference, but... The thing is that BuzzFeed's business model depends on being sensational because the more sensational you are, the more eyeballs you will reach. And that's one of the the challenges of, you know, ad driven content and, and the economics of quote unquote free is that you actually have to cater to the interests of people who are actually, you know, funding the production of your content which if your audience funds the production of the content, then you can actually cater to their interests. Whereas if an advertiser does, you actually have to often do what they ask you to do. So even the New York Times, I think recently, not even recently, like a few years ago, the New York Times actually said, we're moving to a subscription model and we want to reduce our dependence on advertisers. And the New York Times is a podcast called The Daily, which is free. And one of the things that you will hear in every episode of the daily is people will say, you know, they always say, it's like people always ask us how you can support um, the daily if you're finding value in the show. And they say, it's simple, just subscribe to the New York Times. And a a digital subscription to the New York Times is like $3 a month. And it basically allows them to be objective about the journalism that they're creating because now they're not, because if you are dependent on an advertiser, for your revenue, particularly if you're the New York Times, what are you going to do? What are you going to write about? Are you going to write about you know a very great story of something going on in a local community that will be great content and really good journalism? Or are you going to find the most sensationalist thing that millions of people will see so that millions of those people will potentially click on ads? Well, you know, this, this comes down to like personal philosophy, right? What kind of creator or business owner do you want to be when yeah. you're creating content in the world, you've, you have to make a decision. Are you, are you trying to get as many eyeballs as possible? If so, you can go be that Johnny Knox guy from Jackass and just do a lot of stupid shit mm-hmm. and uh, people are going to watch it because, you know, let's be honest. We all have a you know good chuckle now and again when somebody tries to stand up as a jet is taking off two feet in front of them, right? Like they do, they do wild sensational stuff, but it gets a lot of eyeballs because it's funny. Right. Yeah. Contrast that with saying, hey, I want to actually create something meaningful and put it out in the world. What type of impact do you want to have in the world and, and what kind of business do you want to run? Yeah. What type of creator do you want to be? 
Well, I mean, and, and that's one of the things that Seth Godin talks about in a lot of his books. He's like, you know, the idea of the smallest viable audience, right? You, yeah. What is the audience that you can start with? And I think that that's one huge mistake that people make, and everybody makes it, myself included, is like, I want to try to reach the masses. And the problem with trying to reach the masses, to your point, is you will water down your work and cater to the lowest common denominator. And yeah, you can reach millions of people by catering to the lowest common denominator. But yeah. that's going to be your legacy. Like, literally, you're going to go down in history as like, yeah, that's what we created. So, I mean, you look at some of the podcasts that have reached the top 100 iTunes, and you're like, that's what's going to be on your resume? Great. Like, that's great if, you know, when you're 10, you know, 20 years old, you know, 30 years from now, are you going to look back and be like, that's something I'm proud of? And maybe, maybe, you know, again, yeah, Jordan Harbinger and I had this conversation. Is there like a lot of lowbrow stuff that reaches you know, a lot of people. I mean, think about it, right? Would you rather leave a legacy like, let's say, Rush Limbaugh, or mm -hmm. would you rather have uh, like the legacy of Peter Drucker? Rush yeah. Limbaugh reached a much larger audience with some more sensational headlines and, you know, talking points and all of these things. Peter Drucker, though, had a more profound impact on humanity and certainly, I would argue, a more positive one. Yeah. So... Like, I mean, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Didn't didn't uh, Trump give Rush Limbaugh a journalism award? Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. So here's the thing that that is interesting, right? We have one clip that I think is uh, worth sort of revisiting here, and it was from William Dershowitz. He wrote a book called Death of the Artist, and we're talking about uh, YouTube video views, and we didn't find that exact clip where he talked about the numbers, but I remember him telling me something where he said the number of views, like a million people watch your YouTube video for a musician, they make like $700 or a million views. That's sad. It really is. Yeah. But take a listen to this. People need to hear this. I talk to all these artists, musicians, writers, indie filmmakers, uh, and I asked them very intimate questions about their financial lives, the kinds of things that you're not supposed to talk about, you're certainly not supposed to ask about. They were very generous with revealing this stuff to me. And many of them said, the reason I'm doing this, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about, is that I wish somebody had told me this when I was starting out as a young artist. Mm -hmm. Young artists need to hear the truth. And the point is not to discourage people from pursuing a career in the arts. It's the last thing I'd want to do. It's, as you said, to give them a realistic picture amidst all of the optimism that's being sold to them. That's kind of a harsh truth for people who want to be creators to hear. Listen, I, I had a lot of passions when I was younger. And uh, one of them was art and music and, uh, and acting. And I never got to fulfill that because, frankly, I wasn't willing to take that gamble. Yeah. Um, somebody vacuuming? It's my freaking... Uh, I'm trying to bring up the app on my phone so that I can shut off my sliders. Roomba? There we go. Right. No, it's the drapes. They're on automated timers. Sorry. <laughs> They're loud. Okay. Yeah, well, sorry, man. No worries. Yeah, it's true that, that you know, the somebody once, I think it was Al Luna who wrote in her book where you're, 
working in a situation where nothing is guaranteed, anything is possible, and there are situations where every conceivable metric says you should quit. Yeah. And yet there are a handful of people who cut through and actually make it. And so one of the things that I realized over the last 10 years, which goes sort of counter to this mindset of scale your audience as big as possible, is that as you create more distribution channels, as you create more content, as you have more and more creators, the dynamic changes where as the media landscape becomes more fragmented, loyalty becomes more valuable than reach, right? Hmm. And that the power that was once in the hands of a massive media conglomerate is suddenly in the hands of an individual. Right. And often it's people like us that are the biggest threats to media companies because what's happening is suddenly people are saying, you know what? I don't want to watch CNN. I don't want to watch, you know, mainstream news. I want to find this creator who I relate to, who gives me content that I really love. Uh, and I want to be part of that audience. Now, the challenge of that, of course, is that in order for people to sustain that, we have to support them somehow, right? Like, and this is what a lot of people don't realize. It takes us back to that conversation about subsidy subsidization, right? Is that if you are somebody who reads a popular blog and that blogger becomes an author, the people who buy that author's book are the ones who subsidize your ability to read that author's blog for free. So every person who buys Seth Godin's books, which are probably far less people than you read his blog, make it possible for all the millions of people who read his blog to read the blog. Right. And it's right. the same thing across podcasts. It's the same thing across YouTube channels. So for example, all the people who watch your YouTube videos and benefit from them, but never buy a course from you, never hire you to do anything they're basically benefiting from the fact that all the people who do those things, who hire you, subsidize their ability to consume your tutorials for free. Right. Because and the reality is if nobody was buying those things from us, I would have stopped making these videos a long time ago. That's the, that's the harsh truth, unfortunately. Right. Now, the thing is that people don't like that, right? Because unfortunately, one of the downsides of the fact that we've democratized content creation is we've conditioned people to get everything for free. <laughs> and the irony is that you, I, I've always said this, I said you would never go into your Starbucks and bitch that they're charging you for coffee. Right. You go there expecting that, oh, it's coffee, I'm going to pay for this because it's a business. And, and it takes us back to that mantra, it's like we're running a business, not a charity. And I, I have had people who literally sent me just irate emails about being unable to register for a webinar that everybody else was able to register for with no problems and bitch that this was such a horrible experience that if my free experience was this bad, how could they ever expect me to pay for anything? Or how, how, how could he, you know, how, why would I ever pay you? And I'm like, okay, one, everybody else register for this thing with no problem. And two, I'm like, you're getting this thing for free. You literally are not spending a dime to get this. Right. Right. Why are you complaining? Yet it's mind-boggling that people will bitch about free content. Like Chris Gobo has this really great response when people do that. He's like, I'm sorry, you're not enjoying my free content. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so that is really one of those things. But the reality is, to your point, you like you said, 
if you didn't have the people who are subsidizing your ability to continue doing this, then you wouldn't keep doing it. And all the people who get to watch your videos for free would no longer benefit from being able to watch it for free. And well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we've already talked about the YouTube revenue, right? mm -hmm. $30,000 over three, over four years of creating YouTube content. Like, there's no way you could not think I would have sustained. Yeah. 30. It's literally like less than $10,000 a year. Come on. Like which of Chris to what, like a couple dollars a day of that. Uh, I mean, at this point we make, we make about $60 a day on average from our YouTube ad revenue, but yeah. regardless, it's not sustainable. There's no way I would get up and produce the content that I do on YouTube every week if that was my yeah. only source of income. It, yeah, well, like you said, that might be a harsh truth that some people don't want to hear, but sorry. Yeah, and so <laughs> what you know, the thing that people often don't realize, and I think this is why we're seeing a pretty you know big shift in content. So Tiago Forte charges for his blog, which is amazing in a world where people consume everything for free. I, I remember like there was an article I got to to one of his and I wanted and I was like, oh, I can't read the rest of this article unless I spend the $10 a month. And I'm like, well, this article is valuable enough and I've gotten enough value from what he's done. Then I'm like, fine, I'll pay $10 a month. Um, and that's the thing, right? Is that we're seeing this sort of shift now because people are realizing that, okay, advertising can only get you so far as a media creator, particularly if you are an independent media creator. If you're not CNN, if you're not like one of these huge media outlets, you just don't get the same ad dollars. So it's really hard for any independent creator to sustain that, you know, at, at that level to, to actually do what they do. And at the same time, to Gareth's point, like if you don't support the people who produce the stuff that you love and, you know, then it makes it harder for them to keep doing it. And look, I have spent up to two or three grand on courses from people whose content I consume for free for years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like that. Yeah. And you know what? I made that money back tenfold and, it was totally right. worth it. You know? So that's the thing. And so now you're seeing this entire sort of wave of subscription-based content creation where people are saying like, hey, you know what? I'm doing this thing. I've been doing this for a long time or even a short time. Like people are just like, this is, they, they just start out. They're like, I'm not doing it for free. Right from the get-go. You know? Which that's a double-edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, you're like, okay, that's good business sense, but you don't have enough trust to justify that, right? right. Uh, so you have platforms like Substack where people are making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars where the only reason they're able to do that is, and, and to keep doing what they do is because their audience is supporting them. But the beauty of, of being supported by an audience instead of other sources like, you know, advertisers is that you can make decisions in favor of the audience as opposed to in favor of metrics. You don't have to depend on your metrics as much as you do creating great stuff and creating great art. That, to me, is the real appeal of this, um, Substack being just one of many examples. Um, and you know, I think that makes a perfect place to sort of bring us full circle. We mentioned at the beginning that this would be our final episode of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour. It's not entirely the case, but you know, part of the reason we wanted to talk about this subject in particular, is one, we, we hope that it gives you some ideas to think about how to monetize your content. But for 
me, particularly as a host of the podcast, I realized, you know, ad revenue is only going to get us so far. And I don't want to make decisions that are in service of our advertising. We've always done that. And it's come at a cost. We've turned down high profile guests Mm -hmm. that would have increased our downloads and our numbers because it was far more important to me to do something that was in service of our listeners than it was to do something that provides publicity for our guests or increases metrics. But there's an opportunity cost to that, which is you lose money, you lose downloads, you lose the things that, you know, advertisers want. But at the end of the day, this show is for people who are listening. And so one of the things that we decided to do was launch a new version of the show called the unmistakable creative backstage pass. And this weekly segment will be part of the backstage pass. Um, and you'll also get to listen to all our interviews ad free. And it's less than you spend on a cup of coffee every day. Basically what you spend on two cups of coffee will cover your cost. And it's the easiest way to support the show. And if we get enough people, we may get to say goodbye to ads for good and be done with ads altogether. You know, at the end of the day, Right now, ads do bring in a decent amount of revenue, and we we have to be realistic about that. But if you've been a longtime supporter of the show, if you've gotten any value out of the show, uh, one of the best things you could do to support us and to continue making it possible for us to do this is to subscribe. And not only that, you won't just get our standard interviews. You will get this episode every week, the Creativity Hour. You'll get AMAs where we'll do episodes completely dedicated to just your questions. And you'll get access to our editorial calendar to see upcoming guests. So you can submit your questions in advance and those will be recorded as segments too. Gareth, as a former guest of the show, what do you, you know, what do you have to say about all this? I mean, this is pretty cool stuff, man. Um, basically, I feel like you're really giving you're giving the audience you're going back to what you were saying earlier. You built, you broke it down into three segments, right? Lurkers, fans, and fanatics, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, the truth is I think probably the majority of the media that I consume, I'm a lurker for. And I think that's probably the case for most folks. You know, Mm -hmm. it's only the stuff that really matters to me where I become next level and I go become a fan. I start commenting you know, liking, subscribing. <laughs> um, and then, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I've spent thousands of dollars as well on some uh, courses and tools and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the different folks that really have made a big impact. And of course, the best part is, like you said, you usually get a return on that money. Like I remember a course I took for 400 bucks helped me make my first $10,000 online. And I was like, that was worth it. I'll do that every yeah. day if I could, right? Totally. So I think, you know, it's about time you start monetizing this thing uh in a new and exciting way and you know frankly uh, yeah go ahead well there's also there's something else that i think you and i both probably can agree on is skin in the game right when you invest money in something you're going to be damn sure you get more out of it like you will actually make sure you can extract the value from it that you're you know like whatever you're spending right we spend Mm -hmm. what ten dollars a month on netflix i mean i'm sure we all watch hundreds of hours of netflix Right. Yeah. I get a lot of value out of my Netflix. Yeah. Maybe, you get entertainment value, yeah. right? So right, right. It, that's the thing. And at five or $3 a month, which are two tiers, you don't have to listen to ads. Um, you get, you know, ad free listening plus this episode and we'll have another tier soon. But the thing is that then you're able to support this. You don't have to listen to ads. And 
we're able to then continue bringing you stories with people who are interesting, where we never have to make a decision based on metrics, which I held a hard line on for a long time. And again, that's coming to cost, but that makes it possible for us to say yes to people that you've never heard of who have great stories and never have to say no to somebody just because we don't think they will have any impact on the the metrics that would drive ad revenue. And that to me is really one of the big reasons why I wanted to move to, you know, start to have a subscription model, of course, to provide value to all of you listening, but also to give us a lot more editorial freedom to bring you really cool guests mm-hmm. that normally wouldn't appear on any podcast. I know that if you look at the podcast ecosystem, you think about it, right? Everybody tries to bring these super high profile guests because they think they're going to increase downloads. And and sometimes they have to do that. And they have to do that because at the end of the day, advertisers are driving editorial policy. And the downside of that is that it kills objectivity. It basically prevents you from bringing in people from every walk of life with multiple viewpoints and multiple perspectives, which takes us back to some of what we were talking about last week, uh, where we create these echo chambers of confirmation bias. And that to me has been one of the things that I've really loved about being able to do the show in this way. So Gareth, yeah, give them one last pitch for subscribing to the backstage pass and then we'll tell them where they can find out about it. I mean, listen, folks, you want to help support Srini Public Radio. come on down and get your backstage pass i mean you know listen it's like you said earlier um the people who are going to be interested in this are the people who have seen value have seen you give it away for free for so long and to them it's like wait a few bucks for you know to support the channel that i love to support this you know podcast that i love and to continue to get like a little bit more of a a little bit more access, right? I mean, ultimately, when you do an AMA, man, that's not a small thing. Yep, um, there'll be your questions. I mean, as you saw, as we did with Mary, it'll yeah. be your questions. And not only that, we'll do segments where you'll be able to submit your questions to upcoming guests. And literally, there'll be episodes where all your questions will be answered by the guests, but those will not be on our public feed. So you can learn cool. more about uh, our new subscription at unmistakablecreative.com slash backstage. Uh, this will be our final episode of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour for non-subscribers. But for those of you who subscribe, you will get more of this content as well as a lot of other cool stuff. And you won't have to listen to another ad ever again. So, Srini, um, what about those poor people who... Um you know, are going to write you an email and tell you that you should give them stuff for free. All the things for free. You know what I will say to them? We're running a business, not a charity. That's what I like to hear, my friend. (laughs) Hey, at the end of the day, though, listen, you're still putting out some free content out there. So obviously there are... uh, are You know what? Those people are still going to be able to subscribe to the podcast for free. And guess what? You know who subsidizes their ability to listen to that content for free? Advertisers. There you go. So, yeah, and somebody the, and not only that, putting that advertisers. <laughs> so, the, no, I'll tell you who's going to subsidize that. Advertisers and the people who subscribe and become paid subscribers are going to make yep. it possible for those people to listen to free for free. So, to those people who bitch, like I said, we are running a business, not a charity. And that is a message to all artists. Act accordingly. Yeah. 
if something matters, that's what we spend money on. It's like it's our it's our way of voting with our dollar, so now, to speak, right? Oh, and so. I didn't tell you where you could learn more about it. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash backstage. There's a link there. When you sign up on the link, you'll be able to basically just get your new ad-free version of the podcast, just as you do in whatever your favorite podcast app is. And then you'll be done and you won't have to listen to any more ads. You'll get this content and a bunch of other cool stuff. And I'm sure we'll think of all sorts of other bonuses. And you'll actually have a lot more influence on what we put into that feed. You'll have a lot more influence on the editorial policy because I would much rather our listeners influence editorial policy than any advertiser. And I think that that is a perfect place to wrap. Thank you all for listening. And for those of you who subscribe, we really appreciate your support. And we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.